Let me just say, welcome to Socrates in the city, the thinking man's alternative to jeering Barry Bonds. Thank you. You've been a great audience. God bless you. Uh, I'm so glad that you get the Barry Bonds joke. A lot of people uh, don't. Don't identify yourself if you don't get the joke, because people will uh, frown at you. But uh, the Bonds thing, but, you know, before we talk about Socrates or, uh, what's your name, sir? Um, we've had so many speakers. Uh, um, but I need, I need to get the Barry Bonds thing off of my uh, chest. I guess that's what you call it here in America. I got to get it off my chest. It's been bothering me. And just right up front, I want to just kind of get this off my chest and then I'll, I'll feel better. So thank you for being my... 320 therapists. Um, but I, I hate to start Socrates on a, on a sour note, but the Bonds thing is very, uh, it's very troubling to me. It's a kind of a conundrum. If I were uh, Selig, the commissioner, I think I would uh, take a gas pipe if you could find one in uh, 2006. I don't think they exist anymore. But there's no way out. Uh, it's a horrible thing. It's a conundrum. M most of you know what I'm talking about, Right. The steroids thing? Yeah. You know, lawyers, you work so hard, you have no clue what's going on in pop culture. I hope you have a big house, because I don't know what to tell you. But, um, but the point is, most average Americans, and most above-average Americans, and uh, most very above-average Americans know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a conundrum with Barry Bonds. What does Bud Selig do about these big numbers that he's put up? He's just the iconic 714. Uh, he's just achieved it, and yet we know there's a problem. And I've come up with a solution. I just want to throw this out. You guys can take it. Do what you want with this. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was an, I was an English major uh, in college. That's why I can't get a job. I'm doing this uh, nonprofit stuff. Uh, <laughs> but I read the Scarlet Letter, and I believe Nathaniel Hawthorne has given us a clue as to what, uh, what might be done. My, my suggestion is for, for Selig to call a press conference and to announce that our, our long national nightmare is over. There's a little Watergate-era joke for the speaker. How many people remember Jerry Ford? Remember him? Talk about a guy with an asterisk, but that's another story. Um, excuse me, please. Um, actually, I guess Selig would say our long national pastimes nightmare is over, to be perfectly accurate, right? Uh, and he would then announce that the solution is Bonds can keep his numbers, but for the rest of his career, for the rest of his life, in the off-season as well, till the end, he has to wear, yes, you've guessed it, a scarlet asterisk. <laughs> I think that's a rather elegant solution. Uh, if you'd like to read more about it, you can go to my website and I'll try to write something quickly. But... Uh, <laughs> I just want you to think about that, because for the rest of this summer, this question is going to be burning, and people are going to say, what to do, what to do, what would you do if you were Bud Selig? Scarlet asterisk, right on the uniform. Thank you. You really have been a great audience. Um, well, I have to say, it's, it's extraordinary to see such a huge Socrates in the City crowd. For those of you who are new to Socrates in the City, we are, of course, a society of jugglers and magicians. Uh, who gather to share tips on uh, juggling and magic and to make fun of David Blaine. <laughs> the, the lawyers didn't get that either, right? Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. 
somebody's got to work, right? Um, of course, that's not true. Socrates in the City is a speaker series and a wonderful speaker series. It is inspired by Socrates' maxim uh, that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, I agree with that. I think most uh, thinking people agree with that. And it struck me and some friends of mine that those of us who live in New York City in particular lead particularly unexamined lives. I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, Jim Lane, for example. Uh, uh, oh, that's his, I thought that was your initials. I apologize, Jim. I'm sorry. Um, but the point is that uh, not just my friends, but New Yorkers lead famously unexamined lives. So uh, uh, some friends of mine and I thought that we should do something about that, and we decided to have a speaker series where we would have brilliant thinkers who are also, and this is rare, great speakers uh, opining on the very big issues of life, the big and controversial questions that everyone dodges if they're running for anything. Um, Thank you. The big questions of life. Does life have meaning? Is there a God? If there is, can we know God? What about evil? Uh, all of these big questions. Um, that's what we're about at Socrates in the City, raising those questions and trying to start a conversation about them because we think they're important uh, for us to think about and also because I think that they all have great answers and most people don't know that they have great answers, but they do. So that's what we're about here at Socrates in the City. We've had many fabulous uh, speakers. Our format almost always is to have uh, our speakers speak for 35 or 40 minutes, followed by a happy time of 35 or 40 minutes of Q&A. Uh, and then we have time for more uh, wine and cheese. And that, of course, uh, again, is our format for tonight. The last time we were together was a radical departure from our format. We had a film on the life of C.S. Lewis and a panel discussion. It was without question, those of you who were at that. And I'm just curious, how many people were at the, the panel? Nine. Um, it, was, it was without question one of the most magical events uh, that we have ever had, and we have had a lot of magical events, although we are not actually a group of magicians, which I think I said earlier. Uh, but we pause from time to time to make fun of David Blaine. Thank you. Um, our past speakers have included Sir John Polkinghorne talking about faith and science, Dr. Paul Vitz talking about the meaning of fatherhood, Baroness Cox uh, talking about whether um, radical Islam is compatible with liberal democracy, Dr. Jean Bethke Elstein, Dr. Peter Crave talking on suffering, how we make sense of it, Frederica Matthews Green, Father Richard John Newhouse, and the list goes on. Tonight, of course, our very special guest is my former boss and my former and current hero, Charles Colson. In just a moment. I, I have to confess that when I walked in here tonight, uh, I, was, I was a little confused. I was surprised, uh, and bear with me on this, because it's very silly. Um, I was surprised at the size of, of the crowd uh, because uh, I know uh, that, that tonight's speaker is not going to, to sing. <laughs> and I said this, the numbers don't, don't make sense. And, and a colleague of mine pointed out to me very helpfully, I feel so stupid now, um, because I always get these two people mixed up. I, 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 I didn't realize the speaker tonight actually was Chuck 
Colson, I thought the speaker tonight, this is crazy, was Chaka Khan, the singer. Do you, do you know her? <laughs> I, I've been confusing them for a long time, and it's very embarrassing because they're really quite different. But a lot of people confuse uh, you, uh, Chuck Colson, with Chaka Khan. Names remarkably similar. A lot of people baffled by that, and that goes on and on. Very few people will admit to it because it's, it's rather embarrassing. Uh, but I don't mind admitting to it. Um, even when I worked uh, for Chuck Colson, I often confused him with Chaka Khan. Um, that was really embarrassing. Uh, the first few times he didn't, didn't seem to pick up on it, and I was really uh, thanking God for that. And I thought, I've got to, I've got to do something about this because it keeps happening. And uh, so I came up with a little crib sheet, um, which I, I, you know, I sort of palm like a magician, although I'm not a magician, just uh, in case. Uh, but, but, but I palmed this little, little crib sheet uh, with the differences, because I need this right in front of my, my face, uh, between Chuck Colson and Chaka Khan, okay? All right, now I know a lot of you guys, nobody's going to admit it, but I know half of you can't tell them apart. And now I'm going to just give you a couple of ways that they're different. Just a couple. All right, Chuck Colson is the founder of Prison Fellowship. Chaka Khan is the high priestess of funk. <laughs> is that a helpful mnemonic device? Uh, uh, it, another one. Back in 1973, Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Nixon. Uh, in 1973, Chaka Khan was lead singer for Rufus. <laughs> You're dating yourself, you guys. Um, Chuck Colson is the winner of the Templeton Prize in Religion. Chaka Khan is the winner of a Grammy Award for Tell Me Something Good, which was actually written by Stevie Wonder, if you didn't know that. Um, so I hope that's been a helpful primer uh, to all of you on the difference between Chuck Colson, who's here tonight, and Chaka Khan, who is actually not here tonight. Chaka Khan is uh, a singer of funk. Chuck Colson is not. A singer of, of funk. Although I have to say, if uh, Stevie Wonder wrote you a song, you know, a lot of people could probably do very well on the charts, I think. You know, you could probably really break out with, with, a, with a Stevie Wonder song, Chuck. Um, you know, that's probably pretty insensitive of me to, uh, with the whole prison thing, to say break out. I do apologize. I... <laughs> Suzanne, Suzanne warned me. She said, whatever you say, Eric, don't use that prison lingo thing because it rubs. I was going to say bust out, but that's, that's very similar to breakout. Uh, you know what? Look, I, I should say this to all of you. Uh, guys like Chuck who have been on the inside, okay? Re really not funny. Guys who have been on the inside, okay, do not appreciate it when guys like us on the outside try to use prison lingo. So if, if you're around, Chuck, I'm just, just telling you, don't call prison by any of its colorful names to try to impress him, like, like Pokey <laughs> or the big house. Don't, don't resist, please. Uh, he hates Hoosgow. And, and he'll... It'll blow a stack if you call it the jug or the can or the cooler or, or Union League Club, whatever. So, so please, uh, 
All right, this is getting out of hand. I apologize. I, before somebody uses a, a shiv, shiv on me, um, or before the screws get wind of what's, what's cooking here, uh, I think I'd just better get serious and, and, and move on. Okay, forgive me. Uh, I think you know who's clapping. Um, I think you know how seriously happy I am, how joyful I am tonight um, to have Chuck Colson with us at Socrates in the City. It was not easy uh, to get Chuck to come. To be honest, Chuck doesn't like me very much. <laughs> so I pretended to be someone else and he's here. And um, But no, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. Most of you are familiar, of course, with, with, uh, with Chuck's uh, story. I don't want to steal his thunder, but he did work, of course, in the Nixon White House and ended up in prison for a Watergate-related offense. But nothing could have been a bigger blessing for the world because Chuck Colson had a powerful transformation in his life and he found meaning, actual meaning, in a way that he never had before. And the best part of it is that it was also very real that he felt a compulsion to share what he had found with others, and not only with others, but with prisoners all over the globe that their lives might have genuine meaning. Anyone who has a heart for those who suffer for those who are in prison, has his finger on the pulse of what life is all about. Even if you don't know what life is about, you know that it's very close to suffering, to understanding the meaning of suffering and being with those who suffer. Uh, so we're going to hear tonight from Chuck on, on the subject of his book, The Good Life. Uh, title of the book uh, and the talk is The Good Life, Seeking Purpose, Meaning, and Truth in your life. I don't think we've ever had a title that was more at the very core of what Socrates in the city is all about. We're usually a little bit more um, oblique, uh, but Chuck happens to have written a book that is dead on the nose about who we are, Socrates in the city. Uh, as I mentioned, I had the privilege of working for Chuck a number of years ago. Um, the reason I wanted to work for him was because I'd read some of his books, which we have at the book table here tonight. I beg you to grab one or two or five and take it home and read it and give it to your friends. There are very few people uh, who write books quite like Chuck does. Uh, he's one of the few public individuals who's been willing to talk about the big questions uh, and take the grief that comes with publicly talking about the big questions and meaning and to wrestle with those thorny issues, which they are. But I'm very, very personally grateful that he has. His books have meant a lot to me and have helped me personally figure out the meaning of life. Uh, but I have to say that just a few years ago, I was privileged to accompany Chuck uh, to the prison in Danbury, Connecticut, uh, with some friends. I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut, spent years there, never been uh, past the prison gates until two years ago when I visited with Chuck, and there's no question, it was absolutely one of the most meaningful days of my life. Uh, if you're interested in visiting a prison or in learning more about prison fellowship ministries, uh, don't hesitate. Run. Uh, you'll be very glad that you did. Um, as I also men mentioned, Chuck served uh, in the Nixon White House. He's written uh, many books. He's the host of Breakpoint Radio, a daily commentary on world issues. Uh, he's also, as I mentioned, the winner uh, in 1993 of the very prestigious Templeton Prize in religion. People always claim that prizes are prestigious, but some actually are. This is one of the actually prestigious ones. Um, 
on and on it goes. Perhaps the most impressive thing, and I'll close with this, about Chuck's innumerable accomplishments is that he's done virtually all of it without steroids. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, join me in giving a sock tease in the city. Welcome to Chuck Colson. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. And uh, I must say, I've been doing this now for almost 33 years. I've been to 5,702 dinners, rubber chicken dinners, and uh, done many after-dinner speeches and occasions like this. I spoke in Guildhall and Buckingham Palace. I've been all over the world. That has to rank. Normally, you sit there and you think, will this guy ever finish the introduction? You know, and the, the more you've accomplished in your life, the longer the introductions go. And it's really tough on the speaker to keep hearing all that stuff. Tonight was the freshest, most creative introduction I think I have ever had. <laughs> I, I honestly was sitting there hoping he wouldn't quit. I mean, <laughs> I've heard myself, and I'm not fresh to me anymore, but he, he is absolutely terrific. What a great job. Thank you, Eric. Uh, last summer, Eric and I were in uh, England, and you know, this kind of ministry that I'm in can kind of puff you up, but God has ways of bringing you back to earth. Eric and I were over there for a lecture series that was going on at Oxford in the summer on the C.S. Lewis Institute, and uh, after I spoke in the morning, great crowd, great experience, Eric and I, I think Eric and maybe Jim Lane had arranged this, got a bunch of the uh, scholars at Oxford together and a bunch of religious Christian leaders who were in Oxford for these conferences, and we all had lunch together in one of the dining rooms in one of the old colleges. And if you ever walk through the campus of Oxford, you know, these Gothic buildings and the beautiful mahogany-paneled walls, and you just, you feel the centuries going past you as you walk through the corridors. Now, we, we sat at this great table and uh, listened to some of the people who were in a group called Oxford Analytica, analyzing events, Don's at Oxford, analyzing them and sending the information out all over the world. It was the most stimulating two hours I think I've spent. Well, I was in a hurry to get back for the afternoon session because Anthony Flew was speaking, and I'll mention him in just a few minutes. He was the world's leading philosopher of atheism, and he was speaking that day in Oxford, and so I wanted to get back and hear him. So I left this dining hall kind of exhilarated by all the ideas that had been discussed at the table for two hours, and I got out into the street coming through these Gothic buildings, and I realized it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 9 o'clock back home. I called my wife, Patty, at home every day, and so I took the phone out, dialed her, and got her on the phone. Just as I got her on the phone, I turned into the main street of Oxford, and a woman came along, and she was about this tall, and she had these big, uh, bouncing ox athletic shoes on, white, and uh, hair going all over the place, and she got that look, which I've seen a million times when she saw me, and she goes... <laughs> and came right over. Well, I'm talking to Patty. It's a little hard when this woman comes over. And so I started to walk a little faster. She walked a little faster. She's looking right in my ear. I wear hearing aids. I'm not self-conscious about it, but she's staring in one of my hearing aids. As we're bouncing along the street, and I'm trying to talk to my wife, and I said, Patty, I can't do it. This woman's here. And so I hung up the phone, stuck it back in my pocket, and uh, turned to her, and I thought I better be nice because we've got quite a ways to go down to the corner where you talk. <laughs> And God was convicting me, so I started to talk to her. I didn't really get to talk to her much because I was just listening the whole time. <laughs> and she was telling me her entire life history and how much my books had meant. And we got to the corner, and I thought, I'm, I, I really now did get convicted. I wasn't being nice enough. 
So I turned to her and I said, ma'am, can I help you across the street? She said, oh, yes. And she, I took her arm and we started across. Traffic is going in both directions, whizzing past. We get right into the middle of the street. She's wearing these big boots and stops. I could not move her. Traffic on both sides. And she's staring up at me. And she said, Mr. Colson, you're really a very handsome man. <laughs> I mean, anybody likes to hear that. And then she said, but you're much older than I expected. Oh. No good deed goes unpunished, as the saying often goes. Well, I'm delighted to be here with Eric. I'm delighted to be here with this venture of Socrates in the City. I think this is a wonderful thing because the unexamined life uh, uh, is not worth living. Uh, Socrates was correct. I don't think any of us really live unexamined lives. I think most of us ask the big questions. I think they're wired into us, and we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. And most of us put them off because we distract ourselves from them because we often don't want to face them, but they're out there. So I, I commend Eric and his colleagues for doing this. I think it's a wonderful opportunity uh, to get people together and, and hopefully some intelligent discussion. I first met Eric a number of years ago, speaking of intelligent discussion. I was speaking at Yale Law School, and I was invited to speak there on a subject that I had written an article about entitled, Why Yale Can't Teach the Rule of Law, and why... <laughs> why Yale Law School has undermined the rule of law. <coughs> I thought there'd be a riot. Actually, the hall was packed, and there were a bunch of people sitting in front from the town, Yale graduates like Eric and others. And when we got all through, uh, one of the curses of modern education today <coughs> is people are told there is no truth, therefore there's nothing to argue about. <coughs> the uh, students all figured, well, this is what Colson thinks. Let them think it. But that's not what I think, and it's not worth discussing. You really can't have a conversation unless you have some common standard of what you believe to be true. So the questioning was really dull, except for Eric. <laughs> he started popping up with all these great questions. And afterwards, I got him, and I thought, if this guy is, a, is, is as smart as he seems, and it wasn't much competition, actually, because nobody was asking questions... <laughs> I better get to know him better. And that was the beginning of our friendship, which has now gone back many years. And he worked with us in the ministry and did a wonderful job helping me with Breakpoint, the radio program, which is now on a thousand stations across the country. I also have with me Frank Cerruti, uh, who's the senior, who's the vice president of Prison Fellowship and travels with me a great deal. Frank, if you're interested in the ministry, and he's got Steve Memory with him, and also our New York director. Someone was, several people asked me as we were milling around with the crowd, whether they could get involved in the ministry locally or whether we do something in, in the Rikers Island, a lady asked me, and yes, we do. We have a wonderful ministry in Rikers Island. But if you're interested, uh, our executive director for the city, Ryan Myers, stand up, Ryan, so they can see you. And if you're interested in, <laughs> if you're interested in going to the, uh, the only, t the only uh, phrase that Eric didn't come up with is the most common one among prisoners, the slammer because the door slams behind you. So if you're interested in going to the slammer, see him or see Frank or see Steve Memory. One of the things about my life, uh, those of you who know much of my story uh, will know it's been a roller coaster, certainly, uh, but one of the things that I think my life illustrates is what a paradox life is. It's never the way we think it's going to be. And sometimes the worst things we do turn out to be the best things. The best things we, do, we think we do turn out to be the worst. About a year ago, just about a year ago now, I got a phone call from 
Dan Rather's producer. And uh, he had just been announced that he was going off the air. Any of you think there's not a God in heaven? Look at that. Dan Rather was taken <laughs> off the air. <clears throat> and the call was, would I come on his program for one of his closing shows because he wanted people who had been part of big stories he'd covered to be interviewed. And I laughed uproariously. I mean, Dan Rather and I, I wanted nothing to do with Dan Rather. I went home to my wife that night. I said, what do you think, honey? He wants me to come on his show. Can you imagine that? Ha, ha. I told him, no way. She said, that's really, wives are wonderful this way. She said, that's not really very Christian, is it? (laughs) So they called again the next day and I said, well, let me talk to Dan. So I got him on the phone and Ended up, I did it. And uh, interest, it was a fascinating experience because I hadn't seen him in almost 30 years and he was one of the guys that ran me out of town. <laughs> and he was going uh, through some really deep waters and we got into some fascinating conversations. But when he was running the cameras, he said, Mr. Colson, you look so different than you did 30 years ago when I covered you, the water gate, the White House. I said, I am. I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I thank God for Watergate. And Dan Rather's eyes puffed. He didn't use this on the film that they finally, it died on the cutting room floor. But he was staggered. How could you be thank God for what I get? But I honestly do. As I look back on my life and I realized that all the things I'd sought in power and prestige, in influence in government, I never found. And then I go to prison where everything that I'd worked for was in a shambles. And the president whom I knew and served and loved uh, was being... Uh, impeached or resigned instead of being impeached and it was all gone and I remember when I was in prison the thing that bothered me the most was not well it was tough to be in prison period particularly if you've been a high government official because a lot of the guys look at you and think you're the one that put them in prison and so I had threats (laughs) threats on my life and it's it's not a pleasant experience I mean you you get there everything you've owned is taken away from you all your clothes all your possessions your rings you're handed a pair of underpants. Mine had five numbers stenciled on. I knew I was the sixth person putting them on. And into a dormitory at night, and I'd been in the Marines. I'd lived in everything. But you never really quite get used to the desolate life of a prison and this pervasive sense of hopelessness and despair. The thing that was really most difficult for me was the realization that when I was a little kid, starting out, grandson of immigrants, and earned a scholarship to Brown University, first person in my family to go to college, and I thought... I'm just going to get ahead and I'm going to get, someday I'm going to get to the top and I'm going to have power to influence people's lives. I was a political idealist. I'd studied political philosophy at Brown. I was really interested in this. And so I thought I can get into government and really affect how people live. Many people go into politics for idealistic reasons, despite what you're reading about some of the bad apples in Washington these days. They really go into it because they want to serve. They want to do something good for their country. And I did. And here in prison, I think all of that has been devastated now. I'm public enemy number one. I'm number one scoundrel out of Watergate. I'll never have a chance to do the things I thought were really important in life. And that, to me, was the most despairing thing in prison. And I'd look around and see these other guys, and they're, they're really this, they're just their bodies corroding and souls dying in prison, lying on their bunks. Little did I dream that I would get out of prison and God would use my life to start a movement which is now in 113 countries around the world with hundreds of thousands of volunteers, 7 million kids getting angel tree gifts at Christmas time. This huge movement, and every step of the way I've seen God orchestrate it, 
I say that for many of you in this room who are probably unbelievers, and you wonder when I say the sovereignty of God, and you're probably thinking to yourself, well, that's God talk. It's not God talk. I have to tell you, suspend your disbelief, like when you read a novel. Suspend your disbelief for a moment till we get through this talk, because I have to tell you, I have watched this happen. Most of the good things that have happened in my life, I didn't plan them. They were circumstances. And the strangest set of circumstances over 30 years as this movement has spread all around the world. And so I come away from that realization that sometimes the worst things that happen to you, a devotional I love to read in the morning, says that suffering is the school of faith. I don't know how Peter Kreft dealt with it when he was here, but it's, a, uh, it's something that C.S. Lewis, and I'm sure he used C.S. Lewis, talked about it some length. God's megaphone, he gets our attention that way. But out of suffering can come redemption in ways that we don't understand. Uh, but sometimes the worst things that happen to us turn out to be the very best. And if, as I believe is the case, God is sovereign, then there's really never a cause for despair. The meaning of life you often find out of crisis. When you're forced to face those questions and really think hard about them in the face of everything in life falling apart in front of you. And what I've discovered over all these years as I've lived this life or first in political power in the office next to the President of the United States and then in a jail cell and now traveling around the world from prison to prison and different kinds of people that I've met in every walk of life, I've come to the realization that we get deluded. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this best when he was writing in the Gulag Archipelago about his experiences 10 years in the Gulag, 10 years. And he said, bless you, prison, bless you for lying there on the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturing of the soul. And I would argue that the maturing of the soul is manifested when other people become more important than you. There's the most countercultural statement I will make tonight. We live in a self-absorbed, self-obsessed culture, the decade of me in the 70s, and today everything about the world revolves about us. This is a nation of 280 million imperial selves. And it's one of the reasons that we can never get together on political or social questions today. It's the reason we're yelling at each other, because everybody considers themselves to be, in that abominable phrase out of a Supreme Court decision, personally autonomous. And I've discovered that that's the most bankrupt way to see life. I live in a place called Naples, Florida, which is one of the garden spots of the world. It's an absolute nirvana for all golfers. And they all come there. They're all CEOs of major corporations. And they retire to Naples. And this is it. 27 golf courses and miles of sparkling beach and the best country clubs. And I watch these guys. They come. They're powerful people. They've got this New York look in their face. They're determined. <laughs> They're... But now, all of a sudden, they start measuring their lives by how many golf games they can get in. I often say to them, do you really want to live your life counting up the number of times you chase that little white ball around those greens? And they kind of chuckle, but it's a nervous chuckle. Because within six months, they've realized how banal their lives are. And they've got beautiful homes, castles, and when they get bored with that, they build a bigger castle. And they're miserable. The object of life is not what we think it is, which is to achieve money, power, pleasure, that's not the Holy Grail. 
object of life is the maturing of the soul, and you reflect that maturing of the soul when you care more for other people than yourself. I had to cross this Rubicon in my life because I was a self-centered, hard-driving, hard-charging guy. Now I get my joy not out of those kind of things. Uh, the Templeton Prize, which was a big thing, a million dollars, it went to prison fellowship. That was a great deal. They gave me a medal. And honestly, I was asking somebody the other day, where is that medal? <laughs> that doesn't mean a whole lot. But I start thinking about guys like Danny Kroos, who was in a, who was in a prison in Plymouth, Mass., and was, had killed a policeman driving home drunk one night. And uh, desperate, wanted to take his own life. And said he found a Bible, gave his life to Christ, saw the chaplain, got his daughter enrolled in our Angel Tree program so she could get Christmas gifts at Christmas. His life started to change inside that prison, and then he heard about Chuck Colson scholarships at Wheaton College, and he, he got one. And he graduated in Bible and theology at the top of his class at Wheaton, and he's now back in that same prison in which he was an inmate, now as the chaplain in that prison for 2,000 people. Every time I see Danny or Jose Abreu, his wife Myra is here tonight, and their story, and I realize how God took them and plucked them out of prison, turned them around, got them a beautiful home and a family. It's just people whose lives were wrecked. That gives me incredible joy. Sharice, I just met out in San Francisco recently. Beautiful African-American woman, 21 years old, told the story of how she was beaten by her father. There was a hole in the wall next to her bed because he used to abuse her and throw things at her. And, and she grew up in this, this would redefine dysfunctional if you heard the kind of home she was in and what she was subjected to. Then her father went away to prison. She got involved in Angel Tree. Then she got into one of our programs. And this young, beautiful woman came to Christ and she's now a senior at Berkeley, going to be going to Harvard Graduate School. Lives can be redeemed. And when you put your head on the pillow at night and you go to bed and you're thinking about your life, that's what counts. What have you been able to do to help somebody else get a little better break in life? Will mean far more to you when you're counting up, when you're keeping score than the number of golf games, size of the home, sports cars. Far more. Christianity, I would argue, the Christian faith, I would argue, is a way of understanding life, not through your eyes, but through God's eyes. That may be the simplest way to explain it. Not my self-centered self looking at life, but how it must please God to see people who are on the margins of society, neglected, forgotten, the poor, the outcasts, the prisoners, get a chance. And... Uh, to me, I, go to, I, I attend a wonderful church. I'm a member of a great church. I worship every Sunday morning. I love it. But I worship when I see somebody redeemed out of the gutter. That's worship in the fullest sense. Now, you are sitting there. Some of you are sitting there. I suspect a good number of you are sitting there saying, well, that's okay for Chuck Colson. I remember when I witnessed to a famous journalist. I won't use his name, but uh, he wanted to meet me one day, and he's, he's obsessed with God. And he, so we had lunch at a power restaurant in Washington, and he said, you know, you have the, you have the next hour to talk me into the existence of God. <laughs> he ate while I talked and perspired. And the uh, first thing I did was to tell him about my experience with Christ. And he said, oh, that's good. That's fine for you. He said, I've got a friend in California. She's got crystals. That got her off of drugs. That works, too. So some of you, I suspect, are sitting there because this is a normal reaction, saying to yourself, well, it worked for Chuck Colson. That's good. But what's that got to do with me? Well, my argument would be 
that Christianity is not simply a personal experience. And I think 90% of the Christians, maybe some of you in this room who are believers, get this wrong. Rick Warren got it right. Why that book has sold 28 million copies, I believe, is because the first sentence says, it's not about you, it's about God. (laughs) But we think it's all about us getting the benefit of being Christians, or church, or moral teaching, or any one of the number of things we think about with what Christianity means to me personally. But I would argue that Christianity not only is important for you to find meaning and purpose in your own life, but it is vital to the good life corporately. That is how we live our lives together. I wrote a book called How Now Should We Live, which may be out there as well. I haven't seen any of them tonight, but it's a, it's a book about five or six years ago that Nancy Percy and I wrote that deals with how Christianity affects every single area of life. You know, Abraham Kuyper, one of the great theologians of, of uh, the turn of the century, 1800s into the 1900s, into the 20th century, rather, 1900s into the 20th century. Uh, he was uh, prime minister of Holland. Uh, and Abraham Kuyper once dedicated free university in Amsterdam, and he said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence as to which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. Music, science, politics, even law. (laughs) God has something to say about it. And when we understand what he has to say about it, here's my simple proposition to you, which you can chew over, and I'll add some things to explain it. And then if you've got time or if if I've provoked some thought in the question period, ask me some questions about it. You can only make sense out of life when you see life through the lens of a biblical understanding of reality. What's called a worldview. That's not an esoteric term for professors on campuses. It's a very common term. Everybody, every single one of you in this room has a worldview. A worldview, as C.S. Lewis simply explained it, is how the world works and how you fit in. It answers four basic questions. Four basic questions are, where did we come from? For the examined life, that's the first question you have to ask. Because everything's going to turn on how you answer that question. If we came out of the primordial soup, as people believe today, and as your kids are being taught in evolution courses in public schools, if we came out of the primordial soup, then there's no basis for human dignity. If we're created by a loving God, then we're invested with dignity. Second question is, why is there a mess in the world? Is there anybody here who doesn't believe there's such a thing as sin or evil? Anybody here who doesn't believe the world's a mess? Life is a mess most of the time. You're struggling with things. I mean, you've got everything put together and the world rolls over on top of you. One of our associates, his wife yesterday was taken off to the hospital. They thought it was pneumonia. Now it turns out a punctured lung, apparently, and fluid in the body cavity, maybe cancer. One day you're healthy, one day you're not. Why is this sin and suffering? That question that has plagued humanity from the beginning. And if there is sin and suffering and you can answer where it comes from, then the next question is, is there a way out? How are we to be redeemed? How are we to be redeemed? Every great thinker, Jesus included, and I would call him a great thinker, has had an answer to that question. Every utopian promise 
has been a promise of redemption. Marks, throw off the oppressors, throw off your chains. Workers arise and throw off your chains. Freud, get rid of all those childhood repressions and let your sexual desires be free. And you'll be free. Every philosophy has promised redemption. Only one worldview says that you were created in the image of God and you were made perfect to live forever in relationship with God, but sin entered the picture. Not because God created it, but because he put you in the garden and he gave, you a, he gave our primeval ancestors a choice because he gave us a free will. Because he loved us so much, he gave us a free will. If we're made in his image, we have to have a free will. Key to understand that. But if you have a free will, it presupposes you may choose, as Augustine put it, the non-good instead of the good. Our first ancestors chose the non-good. And ever since, people have been choosing the non-good. And every day of the week, people choose the non-good. It results in sin and evil. We're responsible. But in the Christian understanding of things, We have a redemption through Christ, and what the cross means is the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. I have to tell you, I look back 33 years to a night in my friend's driveway when I first heard the gospel. I first heard about Christianity in a serious way. I I was a Christian like most Americans. You know, I grew up in America. I wasn't Jewish. I went to church twice a year. I must be Christian. (laughs) And then I heard the gospel and understood that Christ had died for my sins. And that was 33 years ago, and in a flood of tears, I called out to God. I didn't know the words or anything else. And I think back on that every single day and realize that if it hadn't been for that night and hadn't been for the fact of the cross, that I would be dead today because I would have suffocated in the stench of my own sins. I think back and realize what Christ has taken away and forgiven me for. And I am so profoundly grateful that I will always do my duty. Gratitude, the mother of all virtues, as Chesterton said. Always because of that. That's the Christian redemption. Now, once you get through the question of where we came from, about which there are profound debates, why there is sin and suffering, about which there's endless debates, and nobody's really got a very good answer, I've given you the best one I've got. Then when you look at the various redemptions that have been offered, and I would simply say, if you want to know the test of truth, what is What is truth? Truth is that which conforms to reality. So let's see which redemption works. I've always said if you want to see whether a worldview is true or not, test it like you'd test a roadmap. Go to MapQuest and you want to get driving instructions from here to Buffalo and you get the map and you follow it and you end up in Hartford, that's not a good map. (laughs) You do it again, you end up in Erie, Pennsylvania, that's not a good map. Finally, you get one that gets you to Buffalo. What do you call it? True. That's true. It reflects the reality. And a worldview, and the whole purpose of life, in my opinion, is to search for a worldview that conforms to reality, that is, that is true. And I would argue, and I would love someday, and I write this in The Good Life, my dream someday, my dream always when I practice law was to argue a case before the Supreme Court. I won a case in the Court of Appeals. The government appealed it. It was going to the Supreme Court. I was going to argue it. I was getting all boned up on it always. So I was so excited about that case. And then I got appointed to the government, to the special counsel to President Nixon. All of a sudden, I was on the other side. I didn't get to argue the case. Big disappointment. 
So I never argued a case before the Supreme Court. But I'd like, and I dream about this, and they're going to get to heaven. Maybe God will let me do this. Argue a case before the Supreme Court, the proposition of which is only the biblical view of reality. Created in the image of God, falling into sin by our own free will, and creating sin in the world. Christ redeeming us from that. And then the fourth. Once redeemed, do I know what my purpose is in life? Of course, it's to try to help redeem that fallen culture and to do things in society that help to alleviate the consequences of sin and suffering. You can get up every morning and get real excited about that as a way of understanding your life, as a purpose. Beats the stuffing out of what those executives come down to Naples and get up in the morning and think about, which is why hasn't the gardener given me a better shrub cutting today and and uh, grumpy and out at the golf course at nine, hungover. Uh, that's no way to have purpose in life. Christian worldview gives you great purpose. But I'd like to take those four propositions. Great in the image of God, fall into sin ourselves by our own free will, redeemed by God's own intervention in our lives. And then a purpose to fulfill God's mandate to care for the creation and to care for the world. And I'd like to argue and say that's the only worldview you compare it with Confucianism, you compare it Confucianism, you compare it with Hindu, with Buddhist, with uh, Islam, you compare it with any other philosophy. They don't work. Human history is the ash heap of all the promised utopian answers to human problems, every one of which led to tyranny. Look at the 20th century. Every single one of the tyrants of the 20th century promised to be a redeemer. It was a false redemption, a false promise. The blood ran through the killing fields of Cambodia and the gulags and the Holocaust as a consequence of the false redemption promises of tyrants who use it, exploit people. The only one who's never exploited people is the Prince of Peace, who offers this as a free gift. And we're scandalized by it because it's free. (laughs) Which is one reason the gospel is rejected by so many so-called sophisticated people. It's just too simple, isn't it? Too easy. Well, I would love to argue that case of comparing those worldviews because today we are in a clash of worldviews, friends. And I don't have the time to go into this tonight unless it comes up in the questions, but Samuel Huntington picked it, had, had it right in mid-90s when he wrote that book, Clash of Civilizations. Did anybody here read that book? Do you remember it or remember hearing about it at the time or read the reviews in the New York Times? Samuel Huntington is a professor at Harvard. He wrote a book called The Clash of Civilizations in the 90s at a time when everybody said we arrived at what Francis Fukuyama said at the end of history. <laughs> Talk about utopians. End of history. Western liberal democracy has won the great ideological contest of the 20th century. People will live in peace and happiness ever after. Come 9-11, everybody went out and found Huntington's book. And what Huntington said is, there are three great religious blocks in the world. Eastern religion, Islam, which stretches from Indonesia in the east to Nigeria in the west, 38-some countries of Islam, and Western liberal democracy informed by Judeo-Christian truth. And he said the great dialectic of the 21st century, the great struggle, battle of the 21st century, will be the battle between Islam and the West. 
He went on to say Islam will win because the West is decadent and Islam is monolithic and aggressive. I don't buy that part of it, but that's what he said. Well, after 9-11, everybody realized this is really serious, and trust me, it is serious. I have studied as much about that as anything over the last five years. I am con- uh, four years. I am convinced that uh, Islamofascism is every bit as much of an evil as Nazi fascism was. I am convinced that it is an alien worldview. It goes far beyond terrorism. I'm convinced we're grossly misunderstanding uh, underestimating it. Uh, there are, by most counts, 110 million jihadists among Muslims, most of whom are peace-loving people, admittedly. <clears throat> but there are some who are radicalized by it, and teachings of one Said Kuta in particular. And when you look at the two worldviews, it's no contest. Where did we come from? Both agree that we were created by God. But there the similarity ends. Islam says that you got, Allah rules by fiat. And we don't say that. We say God has spoken, but offers us grace. Islam has no concept of grace. We believe that human beings are responsible for sin. We have fallen into sin. Islam is a utopian religion. It believes human beings are basically good. Therefore, if we just do what Allah, Allah says, we'll live happily and peacefully ever after. And you can see how happily and peacefully all these Islamic republics around the world live, chopping off the hands of thieves, and massacring people. <coughs> Perfect formula for tyranny. No redemption. Christian gospel is nothing if it is not redemption. There's no redemption in Islam unless you participate in a jihad and then you end up in paradise, 72 virgins. Preposterous ideas, preposterous distortions. The Quran was written over a period of 50 years, and it was uh, 30 years rather, and it was written in pieces and bits and pieces, and later assembled. And it's absolutely rigid because it's dictated by God. It's very much unlike the Christian Bible, which is, and the Jewish Bible, which people believe has spoken by the inspiration of God, but which is interpreted in the light of reason and understanding. Not so with Islam. That's why it's so harsh, and it advances by. Jihad. And Christians advance by making a great proposal. Come to the wedding feast. Come sit at the table. Here's an invitation. We're always accused of imposing things. We can't impose a thing. All we've got is a proposal given in love to a lost world with a broken heart. God calls us and says, come. Totally different than advancing by jihad. And finally, we're a pluralistic belief system. We believe that Christianity should have its day in the marketplace and its place in the marketplace. But we firmly believe, as modern Christians, exactly what the founders said. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that applies to Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and everybody else and agnostics and atheists. Not so with Islam. Islam believes that until you are killed, if you're an infidel, and everybody in this room, as I look around, is probably an infidel, Jew, Christian, non-Muslim. Until you're killed, there can't be peace. Allah can't reign. That's a vicious belief system. And it's theocratic. It does not believe in a 
state church, but a church state. These are totally alien worldviews. Equally alien and equally at play today is the battle between what I call secular naturalism, which is the rampant belief system in American life, the fact that it has arisen as a result of the relativism of the 60s and 70s, the fact that there is no truth, no standard of truth, and so we live by our own formulations of what is right and just and true, and we've come out of the primordial soup, so there's no basis for human dignity. So Peter Singer at Princeton, distinguished professor of ethics, can say that um, all species are alike, Therefore, he advocates bestiality until he was challenged once by one of my colleagues in a debate who said to him, but that's not giving the animal a choice. (laughs) Never underestimate the resourcefulness of our Princeton professor of ethics from Australia uh, who is determined to impose his utilitarian system of ethics on us. He went back to the people for the ethical treatment of animals and gave a speech later on in which he said, of course animals give their choice. They can show affection also believes babies should be killed by infanticide. And old people, after all, 80% of all medical expenditures in America are incurred during the last six months of people's lives. So just stop treating them at six months before they die. Right? Just have to count backwards. There's no problems with that. (laughs) But he says that. He says, withdraw care from terminally ill people. Or the phrase that is so popular in American hospitals today, Doctors in the room will understand this. Futile care. Futile to continue that care. Which is a euphemism for saying, get the people who are on the margins of society out of the way. But stop and think about it. If the secular naturalist is right that we came as a result of a chance collision of atoms and all these random mutations all these billions of years later, which, by the way, if you were here for Polkinghorne's lecture, he absolutely refutes by looking at the human cell structure and the way in which information pours through the body. But if you believe that, then what basis is there for ethics, traditional ethics, that there is a standard of right and wrong and a basis for human dignity? There's none. So what is your option? Your option is to do the greatest good for the greatest number and maximize the personal happiness of all species which is precisely the operative definition of ethics among 80% of America's intellectual elite today. They won't say it quite that bluntly, but that's precisely what it is. It's John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism updated for the 21st century. Well, I'm, I'm going to make one other very provocative statement, and then I'm going to quit. I want to make this without being able to flush it out, which is unfortunate because I wish I had time to do it. As you can tell, uh, I've got a couple of people in the room who've been through our Centurion program where we're teaching biblical worldview, Chuck Stetson, and uh, somebody else here. Is it? Oh, Sheila Weber, of course, with Chuck. And anybody, any other Centurions here? We've been teaching biblical worldview. I've been teaching it for the last three years to 100 people who come in every year and And you could really take a a couple of hours on this. I normally do. But I just want to make this statement because I want to throw this out for you to think about. And in the questions, if you want me to enlarge on it, I will. There are five things that are unique and distinctive about a Christian-informed view of reality. Number one is human dignity. 
which is why William Wilberforce, whose life we'll be celebrating soon with the movie Amazing Grace that is coming out next year, on the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade, Wilberforce, the Christian who, who worked tirelessly to end that abominable practice against all the powers of England. All the great human rights campaigns now in the last five years, the campaign in North Korea, Sudan, slavery, human trafficking, all led by Christians. Why? Because we fundamentally believe in individuals' human dignity. Second, I don't think law and government works apart from a transcendent source of authority. And when you look at what we have in the West today, in free Western liberal democracy, it is a clear result of Reformation doctrines called sphere sovereignty. Every sphere of life has its own place. It's a direct result of a book called Lex Rex, written by Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish cleric who was sentenced to die because it was such an outrageous book. It is the law is king, not the king is law. And the rule of law comes from that. And you look at all of the, the elements of Western liberal democracy, they've come out of Christian contributions. Islam has not produced one. Buddhism hasn't produced one. Western liberal democracy is a creation of Christian thinking. Three, you have a motive to build a culture. There's a wonderful book out. I'll just tell you about it. hope you'll buy it and read it. Called Victory of Reason by a professor by the name of Rodney Stark. He used to be at Berkeley and then he was at University of Washington. Now he's at Baylor. It is a powerful book because he explains how the Christian influence built Western civilization. I mean, things you would never normally think about. I wear eyeglasses and I wouldn't see you very well if I weren't wearing them. Eyeglasses were invented by Christians who believed that it was tragic that some people had to be slaves and couldn't work because they couldn't see. So they invented eyeglasses as a humanitarian effort to enable people to get jobs. Hydroelectric power came from Christians who said slavery is wrong for these people bringing the water in on their shoulders, these slaves. Radical departure from the Greeks because... We didn't want slaves carrying that water, so we developed hydroelectric power to avoid their carrying the water, to spare them. Fourth, Christianity provides the moral impulse to care for other people. Look at the great compassionate reforms over the years. Look at what we do in prison fellowship. Why would you go into prisons? In a utilitarian society, we do the greatest good for the greatest number and maximize personal happiness. Forget about them. Let them break rocks. Get in their striped suits and just write them off. Or let them die. Why should we go to prisons? Christianity is countercultural in the extreme when it comes to a culture which exalts self. We're saying that the object and meaning of life is what you can do for others, not what you do for yourself. That is completely contrary to human instincts. And yet that's exactly what Christianity does. And you start adding these things up and you realize that we live in a society that has been formed by conceptions of the good life which come from the way God has created us and taught us to live. 
and no other formulation works. And so Christians say today, we're accused of being the big bad religious right that wants to impose our views on others. No, you can't impose it on anybody. We recognize what Martin Luther King said. He whom you would change, you must first love. And become instruments of spreading that and offering that and making a great proposal. And so I put before you that proposal. That life really only has meaning when you understand it in terms of the way God sees it. And you won't be happy until you find it. You'll be infinitely restless. Augustine said, my heart knows no rest until it finds rest in thee. It's true. Try it. Anthony Flew, whom I met in England, the philosopher of atheism, 81 years old, and renounced atheism because he studied the intelligent design movement and realized that there had to be an intelligence in the universe. Came to the conclusion Einstein did. And turned away from his atheism. And has suddenly seen a whole new way of understanding life. And that's the proposal I make to you. It makes sense only to ourselves when we find that rest which we find only in the. And when we begin to understand life the way we're told to live it, which is the only way it is sustainable. That's my proposal. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. I, I think you're using steroids. Um, we, have, uh, we have time uh, for uh, questions. We can go a little over as long as we can hustle Chuck out uh, when we're done because uh, we, we have to um, stick to a schedule. But uh, remember, as always, at Socrates in the City, keep your questions in the form of a question. If you go over 17 syllables, people will begin to hiss. Very important, so we can get all these questions in. Let's please uh, be brisk, and um, whoever is, uh, please. Uh. Thank you for speaking to us, Mr. Colson. Um, my question has to do with, um, I guess, discussions that I've had with different friends, um, and it's, it's on the idea that, you know, we bring up, you know, Islamic uh, countries and we say the atrocities that go on, but then they counter with, well, you know, Western countries were involved in all sorts of atrocities, you know, in the guise of Christ, you know, and they always, it's Inquisition and the Crusades are the two, like, hot points. And I was just wondering um, how you actually touch on uh, those two issues. Well, the Inquisitions, which went over several centuries, I mean, you hear this all the time. And uh, you hear worse things are done in the name of religion than anything else. That's, that's a, a shibboleth that is tossed out there, and everybody kind of accepts it. It's false. It's basically false. Stark's book says the Dark Ages weren't dark at all, and he goes and explains why they weren't. Uh, the Inquisitions went over a period of, th of three centuries. Many, I mean, uh, horrible. Nobody would defend it. Uh, people were killed for heretical beliefs. But the total number over three centuries, was in the hundreds. Uh, it's historically, if you put it in historical context, it certainly pales into insignificance compared to the horrors of the 20th century. 
The Crusades and the Counter-Crusades, if you go back and read the history of the back-and-forth battles between Islam and the West, were not about religion. It wasn't trying to quell a heresy. It was all about politics. Same with the Northern... I've been, I spent a lot of time in Ireland with both sides talking to them. It was never about Catholic versus Protestant. It was about who controlled the North of Ireland and who provided the jobs. The Crusades were very much that, um, and they were a blot on Islam and a blot on the West, uh, and no one would say it. But there's a fundamental difference. When, and I don't mean to be picking on Islam, but a fundamental difference when Islam launches a crusade to kill Christians and Jews, it's acting consistent with its belief system. When Christians do it, they're acting contrary to what they believe. They're clearly wrong. We can be hypocrites because we, we acknowledge something is wrong and therefore if we don't live by it, we're hypocrites. If you don't ever acknowledge anything's wrong, you can never be a hypocrite. So we're more guilty in the world's eyes because of that, but in terms of numbers, in terms of consequences, uh, I don't think anything even comes close to the horrors that were done in the name of atheism in the 21st century, in the 20th century. Chuck, thank you so much. Uh, in truth, I'm from Hartford. I've never confused it with Buffalo, uh, but I, I, I did enjoy that very much. Um, in terms of Islam, we have a Western society uh, that is rooted in guilt that's not remitted and feels very much intimidated by Islam. And I want to put before you a question I've come up with, and I wonder how you think its applicability is for the culture. If we were to pose this of Islam, is Islam strong enough to handle freedom? <laughs> um, one would have to say that the jury is still out. Um, I honestly don't know if... Well, theoretically, no. Theoretically, a theocracy cannot be a democracy, almost by definition. The only hope you've got is an Ataturk in every Muslim country. And even that is pretty shaky because it hasn't had uh, the lasting effect we would like to see. Uh, and you see battles going on everywhere. I, I happen to believe that this administration is right about exporting democracy to the one part of the world where it has been resisted most strenuously because I don't see another long-term answer. I think otherwise we're going to be in terrorist wars for the next thousand years. You know, you've <clears throat> you got to remember, Americans have a very short memory. We think of 9-11 as being a long time ago, and why aren't the troops home? This is the way Americans think. Islam doesn't think in those terms. Uh, Muhammad started writing the Quran in 632. A hundred years later, the uh, Islamic armies were up within a hundred miles of Paris. We defeated at Poitiers. Uh, the battles went back and forth. Much of what is later Eastern Europe, much of Spain and southern France, North Africa were, were conquered territories. Uh, this battle went on until 1688, 1683, when 
the Polish and German infantry turned back the Turks just outside of Vienna. Decisive battle that defeated the Ottoman Empire. And that was 1,000 years later from Mohammed. And interestingly enough, in case you think worldviews don't matter, in case you think ideas don't have consequences, interestingly enough, when the Polish and German infantry turned back the Turks, they did it on the decisive, the day of the decisive battle was September 11th, 1683. Don't think Bin Laden, who was not a well-trained theologian and scholar, was not aware of that. They're telling us it's a long war, and we're sitting around saying, why can't we get this thing over with? And my fear is that if we can't promote democracy around the world, uh, we're going to be fighting a long time. That's not a pretty picture. I'm uh, glad you remember Charles Martel's uh, contribution to the defense of the West and the uh, Anyone that says the French haven't done anything for us lately uh, can cast their minds back to that. But uh, the, the broader question I have is, it seems to me there is a crisis of confidence in our culture. And how can we recover our cultural confidence? Well, you can do it a person at a time. I believe cultures are changed not by great uh, fiats, by either cultural or political leaders. Cultures are changed over the backyard fence, the charcoal grill, one person at a time. And you have some really negative influences in American culture today. Uh, bad news sells. Uh, and so you always hear the negative side of things. And uh, there is what Oz Guinness correctly calls a crisis of authority uh, because if there is no overarching standard of truth from which you can form a moral consensus about what, what is right or wrong, you break down into ideological warfare. That's, another, that's a whole other area to get into. And you never can get people agreeing on things and the negative surfaces constantly because there's so much rancor in political discourse and social discourse. And so you have us, you, you do, you suffer a lack of confidence. Uh, none of you in the room, I'm sure, follow Wall Street and the market but, or have any interest in it, but it was amazing to me for six months watching all this incredibly positive economic data and all this tremendous economic journalism that was how bad things are. And, well, now it's become self-fulfilling. I mean, you keep talking about it being bad long enough, people believe it. There is a, uh, there is a serious crisis in confidence. I think you only win it back the same way you've always changed every culture uh, going back through history, and that is when the habits of the heart, the, the attitudes and values and dispositions of people change. And that's not done from the top down, it's done from the bottom up, which is why thinking people like this can make a difference. I mean, I don't think you're going to suddenly change the gatekeepers of society like this. I think you're going to change public attitudes. Thank you, Chuck. I'm a chaplain in transportation in New York City and pioneering that um, at 65, going on 66. And I am concerned about there is a spiritual war going on all over the world and about the role of evangelism and also 
um, what's going on in the church in terms of the Christian church? How do we um, speak to this? Because I think so much evangelism comes over as condemnation. So I'd love to your views about how, um, because my well, approach poll, is person to the, person. The latest poll data shows that when non-Christian people are asked to categorize Christians, the adjective most commonly raised is judgmentalism. Yes. They're judgmental. And it is sad that that impression is given by Christians because I like what uh, I think it was Bishop Neal once said, Christianity is one beggar who found bread trying to show another beggar where they can find the same bread. I mean, we should not be judging people. We should be loving people. Uh, and... There is, a lot of, there is a lot of judgmentalism. On the other hand, I think that's also an excuse, a cop-out. I'm not going to listen to your claims because you guys are so judgmental. Well, that's painting with a pretty broad brush because I don't think a lot of people are. What it really is is a reaction uh, moved by the dominant value in American life today. The dominant value in American life is tolerance. Mm. Tolerance has been elevated over truth. But it's not the tolerance that we think. It's not what I was taught in school tolerance is, or grew up believing it was, which is listening respectfully to somebody with whose point of view I vehemently disagree, but I, I'll protect their right. I mean, I'll protect their right to say something I fundamentally disagree with. Today, if you say something somebody disagrees with, you've offended them, and now suddenly that's, that's the cardinal uh, uh, vice. Uh, so we've distorted the definition of tolerance. I sometimes carry it. I don't think I have it with me, but in The Good Life, I quote Dorothy Sayers, who had a magnificent quote on tolerance. Uh, in hell, it is called despair. Hmm. And we have given up of, is nothing worth arguing about. So this paints a very ugly picture of Christians, intolerant, judgmental, uh, and a lot of people have that. Uh, we got to work hard to change it, uh, but you also have to have a society in which presenting a truth claim is not an offense. <laughs> yes. uh, and truth claims are, by definition, exclusive. Mm -hmm. I had I had a lunch on Silicon Valley a few years ago. I think I tell this story in the Good Life. <clears throat> it was a really fun time because there were a lot of Christian guys there, a lot of entrepreneurs, some non-Christian guys. And the world's number one leading futurologist, he writes newsletters, you all probably get it, Paul Sappho. He was sitting on my left, and about halfway through the lunch, he turned to me, and he, he got very uh, indignant. He said, what I resent about you Christians is you think you've got the only way. He said, all religions end up in the same place. You can't say one religion is different than another. Yeah. I said to him, I can't say one religion is necessarily better than another, but I certainly can say they're different. Because if you're not born into the covenant, you're not a Jew. And uh, Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but through me. And uh, every religion makes its own rules about truth claims. They all can't be right. They can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. Well, we got into the most incredible argument. And I finally, he said... He, he, he would not acknowledge that until I took out my pen and dropped it about six times. I said, every time that drops, there's a law, physical law. 
I said, there are also moral laws. And I can't say this pen is going to non-drop because it dropped. Well, he was getting red behind the neck, and he was getting <laughs> very upset. And then he said, well, that's just particles passing through particles, quantum physics. I said, baloney. That's a mass hitting a mass. That's what you're seeing with your eyes. And we eventually got to the point where he said, well, all right. He said, I'll concede that some things are extra natural. <laughs> but people, people pull themselves into a terrible box. And that makes evangelism hard. Yes. I think that was your point. And if you're only 66, you're still a child to me. So. Uh, I'd like you to uh, address the issue of what uh, you seem to think is going to be a very long war, uh, I guess, between the West and Islam. Uh, does the West actually stand a chance if it does not return to its Christian roots and just tries to um, convert, whether it's Iraq and Iran and one country after the next, into a uh, peaceful democracy without actually a Christian foundation to that? Well, I don't think we have any, I don't think we have even a chance, a remote chance, of turning Afghanistan or Iraq into Christian countries. Uh, it would be, from my perspective, rationally, the best system. Because I think it's superior to any other system. I think you can make that argument. I think it's true. That's why I think it is. I think there's a natural order. There's a way God created things. And when you live that way, you're going to live comfortably. And when you don't, you're going to be spitting against the wind and coloring outside the box and uh, cutting against the grain of the universe. So I'd rather see that, but I don't think it's going to happen. The best thing we can do in any of these countries is to create a system of general pl genuine pluralism where different religious systems can be respected. Now, we don't have that in Afghanistan. That's why, um, oh, I can't remember his name, um, the man who converted to Christianity in Pakistan and then came back to Afghanistan was sentenced to die and had to get out of the country uh, because, and go to Italy because he would have been killed. So they don't have a genuinely pluralistic system uh, for all the American treasure and blood that's been shed. It's going to be a long, hard process, and all we can hope for is honest, open pluralism and give free markets a chance. The interesting thing, and this is something that those of you who think deeply about this will see, uh, if you think deeply about it from a religious perspective, Western liberal democracy has uh, exploded in India, in China, in South America, exploding even in Africa, in parts of Africa, uh, in Russia, not in Islamic countries. Why is that? It's a theological question. If you believe that God dictated his word, then what he says and what is contained in the Quran is inviolable. If you believe God spoke in an inspired way through humans, which is what the Bible is, then you spend thousands of years trying to understand rationally what it means. You're far less dogmatic. There is no flexibility and no give in Islam, which is why it has never produced a, a great culture. been periods when it has, mostly copied the Greeks. Mostly, mostly they kept Aristotle and Plato alive during the parts of the Dark Ages, uh, certainly when the barbarians overtook Europe. 
Um, and those were good years for Islam, but it was nothing original. They have created nothing original in the way of original culture. Stark makes that point in The Victory of Reason very powerfully and explains it theologically. Uh, when you understand that, you realize the problem is really a theological question. 